0: All right, welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. I believe this is episode 50 that we are currently on right now. We are reading the book Citizens, Cops, and Power Recognizing the Limits of Community by Steve Herbert. We are on the bottom of page, at the top of page 123, chapter 5 Police Community Relations. Quote, I don't know why they can't smile. End quote. Separation is an obstacle to a responsive police. In the abstract, the narratives of subservience to separation can be complementary. The term, quote, liberal democracy, end quote, is not meant to be an oxymoron. The individual and collective rights that liberal regimes protect through adherence to legal rules to create a political space for the development of an informed and engaged citizenry. Such politically well-developed citizens can subsequently enact democracy in a responsible and effective manner. Without these rights, citizen activism cannot develop with sufficient distinction from the state and thus cannot have meaningful purchase upon the state. The liberal project and the democratic project are necessarily joined. In practice, however, they can conflict. As I noted above, the residents recognized the salience of both narratives. They wanted a responsive police force, yet they recognized the police's need to retain a distinct authority. But they regularly revealed considerable frustration with how the push to separation often blunted responsiveness. Some of this frustration was tied to the mandate to require that public agents be governed by a fair and objective legal order. Citizens sometimes complained when the legal code restricted an ardent police response to a problem. But much more frequently, citizen anger was directed at the other source of separation, police efforts, to establish themselves as an aloof and muscular force of authority. Frustration with legal restrictions emerged most commonly in discussions of sites of longstanding criminal activity. For example, more than one neighborhood contained a home that both residents and police suspected of hosting sales of illegal drugs. Over time, as problems of late night noise and frequent erratic car traffic continued, Residents grew frustrated with the lack of resolution. One couple, Rebecca and Frank, who lived next door to a home with multiple dilapidated cars on its lawn and much suspected drug activity, went to great lengths to document the problem. Dilapidated, excuse me, I think I pronounced that wrong. They recorded license plates of those cars that came and went. They used a video camera to document the late night activities. In so doing, They incurred threats from their neighbor and his friends. After going to such great lengths and making themselves vulnerable to retaliation, the couple understandably. All right, walk for one second. Okay. After going to such great lengths and making themselves vulnerable to retaliation, the couple understandably wished for a forceful and effective police response. But the police could not act just as the couple wished most significantly because of laws governing private property. To acquire a warrant to search the premises, the police needed strong evidence of drug dealing. In pursuit of that evidence, undercover detectives sought to purchase drugs in the house. They did not succeed, the couple was told, because the owner of the house would not sell to those he did not know well. The problem festered, as did the couple's frustration. Such frustration was common in areas where similar situations existed. One activist summarized this sentiment in the neighborhood group in which she was active. I know that we have some other folks that attend the neighborhood group meetings on a regular basis that were incredibly frustrated with how long it took the police to move on a drug house that everybody knew was a drug house. But because there's funny laws with ownership of the house and who is living in it and the landlord thing, it just took a long time to make anything happen with that. And so I think that people are incredibly frustrated with how long it takes to see results. The same dynamic emerged around the anonymous sex in the park. Nearby residents expressed displeasure with the legal obstacles that limited an aggressive police response. However, this displeasure with the limits of the law on police enforcement practices emerged less frequently than commentary on the cultural practices of the police. Thus, it is the second source of the police's drive toward separation that attracts the most citizen ire. Even if residents recognized the functional need for officers to assume a posture of authority, they simultaneously resented the extent of such posturing. Frequent complaints emerged of officers who positioned themselves as too aloof and dominant a force and thereby repelled citizens' interaction. Said one Midlands resident, Andrew, Cops don't understand that they are kind of threatening, just really kind of menacing looking. And some cops, they don't smile, they don't really interact. You almost feel like there's a wall between you and the uniformed police. I think they would do a lot better if they just lighten up a little bit. I think they get more cooperation if they were just a little less standoffish. The metaphor of a wall was used with some frequency. Sally, also a Midland, said, So, I know that it has to be a really stressful job, and so some officers tend to wall themselves off. By just deciding that they're going to do their job, they're going to be alert. There's kind of this hyper vigilance that they develop where they're always trying to pay attention to movement and suspicion and circumstance. And if you're only focused on that and not on the people and not on the community, I think it's easy to kind of lose focus, even if you were initially motivated to get into police work because you wanted to make a difference. While Sally understands why officers might fall into a state of, quote, hyper vigilance, end quote, she, timu- she simultaneously understands how this can hamper police community relations or as Betsy, a Midlands resident, put it, quote, sometimes you see too much NYPD blue and not enough of what policing really is, which is peacekeeping, end quote. For Betsy, quote, a peacekeeping, end quote, approach emphasizes not the force of police authority, but more cultural relationships built around collective problem solving. She perceived too little of this cordiality, and she believed this absence was detrimental to police citizen cooperation. For many, then, police officers seemed to emphasize the dangerous aspects of their jobs and thus asserted an air of authority to command every situation, even when no danger existed. For others, police authority was interpreted in terms of professionalism. The woman described above, Rebecca, whose neighbors alleged drug sales the police could not abate, was annoyed by her interactions with the police. She detected a patronizing tone. Her language was strong. At one point in her interview, she described her general frustration. Quote, The police don't want the citizen to be the eyes and ears for the police, in my experience. That's it that is seen as infringing on the territory of police. They are the experts. End quote. She expanded on this point while describing her actual encounters with the community police officer. Rebecca, the community police officer never said, quote, there's something bad over here. I'm going to try to help you end quote. Never had that kind of relationship. Quote, there, there, nice little girly. I will take care of this problem. You leave it to us. We're the professionals. End quote. That's what I got. Then I'd get stonewalled. Even though Rebecca and her husband went to great lengths to assist the police by gathering significant evidence of criminal activity, they never experienced a sense of shared governance. Rather, the police's desire for professional stature seemed to prevent the cooperative relation the couple desired. Many residents complained that this lack of cooperation was further thwarted by their neighborhood's lack of a regular patrol officer. Instead, they described such an extensive parade of officers that residents had no chance to establish a connection with any of them. Said one resident I wish they could have stayed around more and I wish they could get to know people. Some of the police officers are pretty nice and friendly and they get to know people but then you never see them again. They're gone and people just get confident to tell them or talk to them. You know whether it be just general conversation or letting them know information. Things that are going on. But by the time people get the confidence up to talk to them, approach them, they're gone. I mean, they are literally gone. They're moved somewhere else or they probably don't want to work in this area. So they ask for a transfer somewhere else. I'm not sure how it works, but they just don't stay. Another resident, Jack, who had been active for several years in crime prevention efforts, complained that even he did not know more than the two officers who worked in his neighborhood. This belied a perception that any officers were genuinely interested in serving their neighborhoods and prevented the development of sufficiently close ties to enable a productive flow of information. One resident said she wanted to know that the police were, quote, nice and friendly and someone you can go to for help, end quote. She indicated that she would be much more willing to engage such officers. Because she saw a, quote, constant rotation, end quote, of different officers, she never developed the close relations she desired. This sense of officers constantly rotating frustrated hopes for improvement. Said Meg, we don't get to keep nobody. They change the police officers like you change underwear. As soon as you get to know them, get to working with them, they move them on to another station somewhere. That doesn't help then either because then you have to keep starting from scratch. For many citizens, then, the police were far too separate from the public, too difficult to engage because of their displays of authority and their transience. This air of distinction was made worse for some by the extent to which the police affected a particularly masculine pose. Tracy explained, Oh, I don't know why they have to come on like they are macho, macho power people. I don't know why they can't smile and, you know, give me a ticket, talk gently. They always come across, you know, maybe it's my impression of the police before they come to me, but they always seem to come macho. They never smile and they never make me feel like I'm... They never make me smile. They never smile. And they make me feel like I'm just a terrible person. Uh, Okay, let's let's take a moment here to uh, reflect. Uh, Okay, okay, we're almost we're almost done with this segment. I wasn't sure when the segment was going to be done. We got one more page left in the segment. Then we'll reflect on the things we just read. Okay, said Roland, they're really abrasive. If it was some guy off the street acting that way without a badge, he might catch a fist in the mouth. But since he's got a badge on, it's sort of a crutch he can lean up against and act any way he wants to. End quote. So the expression of masculinist authority keeps many members of the public at significant distance from officers. This impedes the type of relationship that citizens say would allow them to influence what the police do to make the police somehow subservient to public input. Not surprisingly, excess of masculinist authority were emphasized most by African-Americans. Indeed, the only detailed stories that emerged about the direct experience of rough handling by the police came from two African-Americans. One, a teenage male, detailed a scenario in which officers grabbed and searched him. The officers later justified their actions as motivated by a report that someone in his group had brandished a gun. For his part, the young man was not convinced that the police would have treated an older person in quite the same manner. Similarly, Lacey, an African-American resident of Blufftop, described an incident in which she said her son had been treated roughly when asked if she had any unpleasant experiences with the police she said lacy no but my son has had encounters with them and as far as i'm concerned they get on my nerves because they have stopped him and accused him of being somebody else and throwing him up on the car and handcuffing him and checking him and you know what i'm saying and they got him for jaywalking in front of the house interviewer why do you think that's happened to your son lacy Well, because he's black and because he's six feet, five inches tall and because he was wearing a hooded sweatshirt and it was the color of, I guess, gang members. These complaints from some African-American respondents point to a particularly problematic form of police authority, but they were highly unique in their general complaint about the narrative of police separation. Residents regularly suggested that assertions of police authority made officers unapproachable and even unreachable. As a consequence, they were unable to make one agency of the state, the police, sufficiently responsive. Subservience was thus impeded by the police's stance as a distinct and superior social group. Much the same dynamic reveals itself when we look closely at citizen reactions to how the police generate the communities with which they interact. And then that brings us to a a changing of, uh, of themes in these passages here. And so I think the first thing I want to point out is I'm happy that they brought in the experiences of and specified the experiences of, of black people uh, towards the end of that passage. I think that that was something that was glaringly obvious to me that the majority of these people who were talking about their experiences with the police and their uh, the things that they understood about police work. And the majority of this this uh, chapter that we have read, it was clear to me that these were people who were not black. Uh, and I would make the assumption that these were a majority of white people who that they were they were interviewing, and I think that that is something that has to be uh held in high re, high regard too when we begin to speak about community and civilian interaction with police is what demographic do you fall in? Uh, I think that if you talk to poor people in a city as opposed to affluent people in the city they're going to have a different uh experience with police and they're going to have a different perception of police if you talk to black people in a community even if you talk to black poor people and black middle class black rich people they're going to have different experiences of the police and different interactions with the police and a lot of those things heavily rely on how you are viewed by the police. Do the police view you as a person who is, uh, quote-unquote, a criminal, or do they view you as a, a person who is, quote-unquote, a, a, a potential victim? And, and, and those things really shape a lot of how uh, citizens and cops interact, and it cha- shapes the power dynamic between citizens and cops a lot. And, and so I think that those were, uh, I thought that was important that they pointed out the specific experience that African Americans have or black people have. I think another one of the things that was that seems to be a regular occurrence in here is people who have a desire for police officers to be more friendly or be more approachable or be uh, more kind or be more nice. And again, that gets you into a place where people feel like that and think like that. It's clear that they don't understand what the institution of policing is for. They don't understand uh, the policies and the procedures of police and where police fit in at in. where police fit in at in uh, the government, in the, in the society that we have, uh, the police have no desire to be friends with people or to be friendly with people or to uh, build relationships with citizens and community members outside of it being beneficial to their job or advantageous to their job. And I think that that is something that has to always be kept in mind, is that these police officers are here to uh, somebody in a city, city, a or truck, the fuck, give me a thumbs up. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and I threw my whole shit off. But the, that's not these police officers are not here to be officer friendly, uh, unless it is a way for them to be able to get closer to an arrest that way. I think another one of the things that should be pointed out is a lot of people do view themselves as uh, well. If I call the police for this, or if I report this to the police. Uh, you know, they'll take care of this for me. And a lot of times that is not how these things work. These police officers have uh, their own way of doing things, a certain way of doing things. And I think I've told this story earlier in this book, but I think it's just one that bears repeating. I was told a story about how someone uh, loved one of someone called the police because somebody across the street were, were uh, selling drugs and just had. Uh, criminal or quote-unquote criminal activity going on and the police went and spoke to the people at the house and then told them who it was who called the police on them uh, which resulted in them having their house shot up later on and so again you get into this place where you understand and this is something that is a regularity police officers uh, using citizens against one another in in a and whatever their long-term goal is is police officers to uh, reach Using citizens is like pawn pieces. And so I think we just do a disservice to not only ourselves But especially younger generations uh, growing up and coming up when we don't take the time to Educate ourselves on what the institution of policing represents and what the institution of policing uh, truly is and then uh, Passing that education down on to uh, younger people Okay, I want to see Where we are at do we got time? Well, I think we should only we shouldn't be that we only like 12, 13 minutes. We should have time to run through one more segment. Okay, yeah, we got the, you should be able to finish this chapter up, I think. Uh, let me, hold on, let me see what time we at. Yeah, all right, let's try to knock this chapter out. There's only so much self-sacrificing you can do. Routines, morality, and the police community connection. For the police, quote, community, end quote, is not an objective entity independent of their own social practices, but something they create via their internal procedures and cultural understandings. There are two principal means by which community is so generated, through the various processes by which citizen input is collected and sorted, and through the moral understandings officers develop to understand their work. In each case, the police construct, quote, community, end quote, in quite consequential ways. As I suggested above, many residents fully recognize the need for their requests for service to be channeled through various bureaucratic routines. Further, many of them share the moral construction of crime and the police work that officers favor. However, this basic acceptance of the police's generation of community was tempered by strong concerns. For many residents, the treatment of their requests and suggestions was a source of great frustration. Similarly, Many expressed strong reservations about how police moralizing led to officers treating their concerns with insufficient seriousness. Police protocols for assimilating citizen input emerged frequently in conversations with citizens. Many expressed deep frustration with how their conversations with the police were structured by a particular format. For example, those who called the police emergency number wished to give their story in their own terms. Instead, they were expected to answer a series of questions posed by the operator. As Lane put it, when people place a call to 911, their narratives are just, quote, stream of consciousness, end quote. They find it jarring when the operator interrupts to ask a sequence of questions. The caller's desire for empathy and patience is thereby disrupted. As someone who was well versed in police procedure, Lane captured the dilemma well. Lane, the problem is, though, in order to have optimum safety for the officer, is that they have a very specific protocol in the order of the questions they ask, if they are going to be dispatching an officer to the situation. And they can't wait for somebody to to just disclose all these things. They have to ask all these questions. Still, she argued that 911 operators needed to be more sensitive to the dynamics on the caller's end and to respond with greater empathy. Such sensitivity would surely be welcomed by Jack and Lolly, a married couple in Eastside who were quite active in neighborhood efforts to reduce crime. They describe their frustrations with police response to their calls. Lolly. We have all taken notes and got notes and license plate numbers in. Jack, not all of us, but those of us who are active in it will try to collect information and report it. But Lolly, it's quote, what are they doing? How do you know? Are they doing anything? And you feel like, why am I making this call? I've taken the license plate number, endangered my life sometimes. Jack, express the concern. But the 911 or the non-emergency operators questioned the Lolly, validity, Jack, of the report. They don't accept it. They question it, and we don't understand that. When their input is channeled in a particular format and questioned as to its accuracy, Jack and Lolly and other residents feel betrayed. Others were incredulous because they believed the questions that were asked evidenced the lack of awareness of the situation facing the caller. Two respondents were particularly appalled. Said Christy, and yes, we do call the police at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. We got people going up and down the street going 100 miles an hour. Quote, well, what's the license plate? End quote. Who the hell knows? I'm lucky to know that the car is blue. I'm not going to go out there in my pajamas and stand and get killed to look for a license plate. So if you can't give the police a license plate number, they're not coming out. And Marcia, I've called about gunshots at night and stuff like that. They have said, quote, what does he look like? What kind of gun he got? This and that, end quote. I'm not going to go outside asking that guy, quote, can I ask you what kind of gun you got? What your intentions are in using it? End quote. We can't do that. We are putting our lives at risk doing something like that. Even when they recognize the need for the police to channel their input via certain prescribed routines, then... Citizens were often disappointed when they encountered those routines. Operators who followed the script interfered with citizens' desire to tell their story on their terms and thereby seemed to indicate indifference to the reality that callers faced. This general sense that citizen input cannot be heard went beyond encounters with 911 operators. It was also directed in non-emergency contacts with the police department and with other municipal agencies. Many were regularly discouraged by the amount of effort required to make themselves heard one woman Patty had administered care to a young shooting victim in Centralia trying to stanch his blood flow while an ambulance was summoned though her efforts to save the young man's life were unsuccessful Patty devoted herself to trying to prevent future such deaths by becoming involved in neighborhood anti-crime activities she quickly became frustrated by the obstacles and difficulties involved in making her neighborhood's concerns heard and getting them addressed she described some of these efforts and how they developed and then complained, quote, but darned if the requirements aren't all self-sacrificing. There's only so much self-sacrificing you can do when you've got someone shot right in front of your house. End quote. For many, this self-sacrificing took the form of trying in vain to locate the proper city bureaucracy from which to solicit assistance. One resident, for example, described the, quote, voicemail maze, In quote, she confronted when she sought help with the rundown property on her block. The complexity of the task, she said, led her to simply give up after a while. For others, frustration emerged from the lengthy process through which citizen input is often vetted. Meetings followed meetings and progress occurred slowly, if at all, said Marshall. And I've talked to the people in the community that used to go to the meetings, but they don't go anymore for the same reasons. You have three people that talk all the time and they just argue with each other. And it's about a light pole. Let me tell you, my life is too busy to talk about a light pole. Or as Rob said, quote, the process is a big production. I'm not really much of one for process. The process is way too much. Let's get, take one second and see where we at time. My fault. Okay, here yeah, we got. We good. These and other residents feel deterred when they request a clear hearing of their complaints and ask for a sensible state response. The various bureaucratic routines through which those complaints are processed diminish citizens' confidence that they can render the state subservient. Citizens are at times similarly ambivalent about the police's moralistic constructions, particularly of places. Many residents accept the police's moral construction of crime as an evil pollutant that requires expulsion, and many accept the attendant idea that the police are the virtuous agents of extraction. Tied to this moral construction of crime is often a moral construction of particular communities, as places where the pollution of crime is allowed to fester. Residents in these areas often experience the police as dismissive of the neighborhoods in which they live and as neglectful of their problems. Jean lived in Eastside, but she was active in anti-crime efforts in Centralia. She told a story about what transpired on an evening shortly before her interview. She and some other neighborhood activists were spending the evening barbecuing and keeping an eye out on the scene in hopes of helping deter crime. She described what happened when the police came through on patrol. Well... Then the police came by, and it was three, no, two officers that we did not know. We seen them on our block walks at night, and we're starting to learn the familiar faces of the guys. But these were two that we didn't know. And they said, quote, what are you guys doing here, End quote. And I said, quote, well, we're just sitting, the, sitting the here kind of watching life go by and kind of keeping an eye on the neighborhood. There's a lot of activity on this particular block tonight, and we kind of just want them to know we're here. That the neighbors know that we're here and we're kind of just observing things, end quote. And they say, quote, gosh, we wouldn't sit out in this neighborhood at night by ourselves, end quote. And I say, quote, this is our neighborhood. We can't just, you know, let it go by. We have to know what's going on, end quote. And then they kind of chuckle and they say, quote, well, you better be careful that the drunk drivers don't come and roll over you here in the traffic circle, end quote. And we say, quote, you know. It's our neighborhood, end quote. Rob complained about what he termed the police's, quote, preconceived ideas about what a community is, end quote, as part of an explanation of his dissatisfaction with levels of service from the police. Well, they don't come for hours. And when they do come, they're coming into a neighborhood where you're stupid to be living here. I've had them say stuff like that to me. Quote, I wouldn't live in the city. I wouldn't do this, end quote. You don't feel protected by the police. As members of an apparently morally condemned community, these residents suggest that they suffer from a lack of adequate service. Here, the moralism of the police seems to interfere with the residents' desires to make police subservient to their expressed needs for a higher level of protection. Not surprisingly, many of these citizens suspect suspect that neighborhoods of higher social and moral standing are not quite so starved for attention. Betsy was a landlord in a disadvantaged neighborhood down the hill from Bluff Top. She had worked to rid her neighborhood of various instances of criminal behavior, but she felt less than fully supported. She suspected that if she lived elsewhere, her complaints might resonate more loudly. Betsy, because chances are, if I live in and I call in and say I've got an abandoned car here, somebody's going to come along and pick it up. We had eight abandoned cars on this cul-de-sac about six years ago, And it took a concentrated effort of a lot of residents working in concert with the crime prevention specialists and basically people just nagging and nagging and nagging until it got done. Interviewer, why do you think it is that they leave them here longer? Betsy, because they don't because we don't have the same amount of clout economic clout that other parts of the city do have. Where we when we do things effectively, it's because everybody gets together and just nags like little dogs on getting it done. It is difficult to verify the accuracy of Bessie's comparative assessment of police services, but she made clear that she felt that the police were dismissive of her concerns because she lived in what they perceived to be a morally tainted neighborhood. Others felt similarly. Said Hal, a resident of Centralia, quote, When the police do respond, they come to the community with an attitude, like, What are you doing living here? If you choose to live here, you're a loser. Thus, the operations by which the police construct community through their bureaucratic routines and their moral definitions of places and people frustrate the desires of many residents to convince officers to provide the level of service they desire. As with police practices of separation, these generative operations run counter to the goal of subservience in ways that lessen the legitimacy of the police. Conclusion Residents evinced both the strong acceptance of the police and an interest in working as closely as possible with officers. They saw the police as indispensable in helping make their neighborhoods safer and more secure. They yearned for a steady and reliable officer on the beat when they could approach easily and engage in a productive discussion about their neighborhood. In this way, they implicitly endorsed the ultimate goal of community policing, a close and cooperative relation between citizen and officer that can enable collective problem-solving. This desire for a responsive police force was tempered for many citizens by the recognition that officers cannot always do precisely what residents request. Citizens frequently indicated that they understood that subservience needed impediments. They accepted the need for officers to uphold the dictates of the law and to assert their unique authority to calm chaotic and dangerous situations. However, for many, this impulse toward authority was too often overemphasized, too often employed unnecessarily. Citizens often describe instances where they felt de- de- excuse me. Citizens often describe instances where they felt dismissed where the police's assertion of superiority left them diminished. When the police assumed such an authoritative stance, the citizenry found themselves unable to influence what officers did. They saw a limit on their ability to make the police subservient to citizen input, and they were frustrated. They were also often frustrated with the police's construction of community. On the one hand, many residents understood the need for bureaucratic routines and many shared the police's moral construction of crime and the valiant role of officers in combating it. On the other hand, residents complained about how their request for service could be distorted, ignored, or routed through an interminable labyrinth of process. Many also argued that in the police's moral universe, their neighborhood was found wanting and thus undeserving of serious police attention. Hopes for a more subservient police force were thwarted by police procedure and moralizing. In short, the projects of subservient separation and generativity stand in uneasy relation with one another and are difficult to reconcile in theory and especially in practice. The intractability of this tension helps us to understand just why, quote, it is so difficult, end quote, to find a way by which community and police as one important instance of the state-society relation can move forward toward the goal of collective and cooperative problem solving. Whether a meaningful way forward exists at all remains an unanswered question. I use Chapter 6 to review my analysis with the aim of assessing the larger lessons it offers and the possibilities it implies for how to best structure the police-community relation and that brings us to the end of chapter five and beginning of chapter six and i believe chapter six is the final chapter yet so our next episode of rockford reading daily will be our final episode reading citizens cops and power and then we'll have a sm- one episode doing a small reflection and then we will begin with the next piece of literature which i uh, i'm not 100 percent sure what book that will be yet but i'll, I'll know for sure in the next episode I. Uh, we're at about 33 minutes here i think that that last passage a lot of that spoke for itself uh, usually that's how the the conclusion or the last portions of these chapters are they wrap a lot of things up so i'm not going to really add too much more to that Uh, i think the main thing as we come to the last chapter of this book that i've taken away from all the things reading here is that we have to have an understanding that we're not going to people who are uh, abolitionist uh maybe people who are not abolitionists as of yet but are on the road to abolition uh there we're not going to wake up tomorrow when the police departments around the country are going to just have evaporated overnight we're going to we're going to have to take steps towards uh getting to creating new institutions and new uh, organizations and new systems that can Uh, deal with the causes of these problems, that can deal with the roots of these problems. Uh, But as we're in the process of doing that, I do believe that we have to educate ourselves onto what the current institution of policing is, what the current climate of policing is, and find uh, steps that we can take to adjust those things uh, in in an effort to eventually eradicate ourselves of this institution because of the fact that we understand all the historic uh impediments that this institution has when it comes to legitimacy and when it comes to truly absolving uh us of 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 the root causes of crime and so i think that is it we part of understanding that is understanding community and understanding neighborhoods and understanding locale understanding uh different people's experiences with police uh all these different uh these different things that have been touched on in citizens cops of power so i want to ask you to please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on uh if you haven't listened to previous episodes of raffle reading daily go back to listen to previous episodes if by the time you listen to this there's future episodes out please go and listen to those future episodes uh like us on facebook follow on twitter follow on instagram like us on facebook uh subscribe on youtube follow us on tiktok uh all right we outside new episode tomorrow